All right, so thank you for listening. You're listening to the Anthro Alert podcast, where we take our live show from USF Bulls Radio, and we publish it here for you to listen at your enjoyment. Um, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Bulls, you're listening to WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com and the TuneIn app. It's a beautiful Friday afternoon. It's a little hot today, but we're getting some sunshine, and that's that's always good. So you're, it's uh, 2 o'clock, you know what that means. You're listening to Anthro Alert. Uh, if you haven't listened to us before, we are on at 2 from four and not three to four so we have a two-hour time slot from now on so if you're new to the show let me uh let me tell you what we do here what are we what are we all about you may be curious so let me let me inform you let me fill you in so this show is about anthropology and simply why it matters each week we'll discuss how anthropology is relevant and over time we'll feature various guests from the Department of Anthropology here at USF to discuss the research and to have them weigh in on everyday topics or current events. Uh, we believe that this is a good opportunity for us as anthropologists and students of anthropology to better connect with the USF community and to raise awareness of the value of an anthropological perspective. Just like every week, we like to preface our show with the disclaimer that the statements we make and the opinions we express here on Anthro are, are ours and ours alone. Um, they may not necessarily represent uh, anthropology as a discipline or the USF Anthropology Department, USF, or student government as, as an entity. So with that all out of the way, I am one of your hosts, Spencer, and I got Renee here sitting beside me. Hi, and you know Spencer's talking about opinions, and yes, man, I have opinions, but they're just mine. Yeah, we have all kinds of opinions here. And hi, I'm Bree. Uh, I am an anthropology student department. I am co-hosting today along with these fine gentlemen, and we have a guest on the show today. We do. We have two guests today, but we have, well, right now we have Jacqueline. Hi, Jacqueline. Thanks for coming on. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, and Jacqueline, so she is a PhD student here at the University of South Florida. Um, let's see. Let me, let me backtrack a little bit. So before that, you were at New Mexico State University. That is correct. Over in the Mesilla Valley, Las Cruces, New Mexico, um, border town in southern New Mexico. Good place. Um, good times. I've been there many times. I miss the green chili. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, that was that was fun. I um, that's just a great part of the world. So that's cool to meet somebody else that spent some time there. Uh, interesting story. The director of the Marshall Student Center. Also went to New Mexico State University. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, just met that that person recently. He's a very nice person. Um, and before that, I think, Jacqueline, you were somewhere in Michigan? Yes. I attended Grand Valley State University for my undergraduate. Yeah. Just 45 minutes north of where I went for my undergraduate. And that was uh, Michigan State out in East Lansing? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But I actually grew up near East Lansing. So, so. really, mm-hmm. all the ties here r- run deep on Anthro Alert. Yeah, six degrees of anthropology. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right, so, and on the show today, Jacqueline is just going to talk to us about the topic of her thesis research, which was looking, um, I'll give you like the one-sentence spiel of it, was looking at traditional foodways, um, but that's th- what we're going to talk about today, so I'm not going to spoil anything for anybody, because I know you're super excited to hear it. Um, but yeah, let's uh, let's kind of explore that a little bit. Yeah. So, Jacqueline, um, 
can you give us a little like brief i don't know your elevator speech about what your master's thesis was broadly based on of course yeah so for my master's thesis i was looking at the multi-generational perceptions that native americans have of their traditional foodways okay um what, so, what are foodways yeah yeah, so foodways are really any intersection of culture, tradition, and history. And then traditional foodways would be these intersections that have been passed down through the generations. Okay. So kind of like food culture. A yeah, bit. food culture, essentially. All right. That's neat. Where was your, like, where was the site of your research? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I partnered with the Southwestern Indian Polytechnic Institute, which is located up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, three hours north of where I was living. Um, and so they are a federally operated Bureau of Indian Affairs community college. And so basically I worked with students who were enrolled in the culinary program there to talk to them about their perceptions of foodways. That is so neat. Yeah, that is really interesting. Why? Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Renee. Go oh, ahead. No, I was just going to comment that, um, you know, when I was in um, in middle school and high school, I was uh, a part of this the organization. Um, f- well, it used to be known as Future Homemakers of America, and then they rebranded as Family Career Community Leaders of America. And so I spent some time learning about, like, hospitality and culinary stuff hmm. and uh, from people all over the state. So I'm sure I met s- several people who would later go to that institution. Hmm. Was this institution only for culinary students, or were there other... No, so it is a program that's designed to bring kids in off of the reservation and kind of provide them with the opportunity to attend school. And because they are all members of federally recognized tribes, they get their tuition covered through various federal programs. And so who are the actual, like, instructors at this institution? Are they also part of these tribes, or are they coming in from other communities? Yeah. It varies. Um, most of the instructors are hired through usajobs.gov. Mm. So they come from all parts of all walks of life, essentially. We mm. did have some who were indigenous, but most of them were from other parts of the country. I know the director of the culinary program is originally from the East Coast. Interesting. Okay. Like East Coast, like... Like New York, D.C., Boston, or like uh, Fort Lauderdale? <laughs> <laughs> that is a great question. I always forget to differentiate between the two. Um, but no, definitely the like New York, Boston area, okay. somewhere up there. I don't remember quite where. That's mm. cool. Um, so why did you choose to work specifically with the culinary students and professional chefs? Um, it was for a multitude of reasons. I knew I wanted to work with Native Americans or American Indians. It varies on how you refer to them. Um, But I did not want to have to go through the IRB process of trying to gain approval on tribal lands because you always have to go through the tribal IRB, and that can be very difficult at times. Some researchers have worked for years trying to get through that IRB process and still haven't gained entry to the community. Okay. So my advisor at New Mexico State University heard of this program up at at SIPI, and so we made arrangements to meet with people, and it just kind of grew out of that. Okay, that's really interesting. So you hadn't, like, originally intended to do at the Polytechnic? Like, you kind of had your sights set on maybe a reservation, but this just kind of grew organically? Yeah, I didn't really have a specific site in mind when I went for my master's program, so it just emerged out of connections. Mm. That's really neat. 
So as you're developing your research, what were like what were some of the questions you were asking that like drew you to to food and, and Native American studies? Yeah, um I was initially interested in environmental issues that American Indians face, but I wasn't really having much luck in figuring out how I could access the populations. And then I was taking an applied anthropology class and one of our discussions was about how different communities are colonized through different elements of their culture. And so that's when I really started to think about, okay, so if we can colonize populations through their culture, then can we also do it through their foodways? And then I kind of fell down the rabbit hole looking at how when we, as a nation in the past, forced American Indians westward and took their lands, how we also forced them to alter their diets and how that's had negative ramifications today still. Can you uh, explain a little bit more about like how their diets changed and you know the state of their diets even today? Sure. Um, well, first of all, there were a lot of tribes who were living here on the eastern part of the United States, anything east of the Mississippi River. And as white settlers, predominantly European settlers, were taking these lands and forcing the Native Americans westward, they were forced onto lands they weren't familiar with. And so that really changes your whole way of life, um, but especially in terms of what kind of food you can grow. So if you're from an area where you're used to having a lot of rainfall, having fertile soil, and then all of a sudden you're in the desert where you don't have a lot of rainfall and the soil is definitely not the most fertile, it really changes how you can grow your food. Um, so there is that. And then there's also the forced commodities program, which encourage these indigenous populations to consume Western commodity foods such as flour, sugar, coffee, lard, that sort of thing. And, and just out of curiosity, do you know how these foods were, how they were selected um, to be like commodity foods? Um, really, it was just whatever the military had on hand when they were transporting these populations and whatever was going to be cheapest to feed these people. So it was like mostly convenience and economic? Exactly. Okay. Well. Um, but like, so this is really interesting because, you know, you're hearing, I mean, a, lo a lot of people I'm sure aren't familiar with the historical context of mm. uh, forced displacement, you know, you know, leaving the ancestral uh, or being forced to leave the ancestral lands and kind of, you know, having to migrate into, like you say, a, a desert area and then having to just, right. you know, this is, this is your home now, just, you know, figure out how you're going to live here yeah. because... Uh, you're not going to live where you used to live before, right? That's that. That to me, like, I guess I was kind of aware of that before, but the, the hearing how you describe it right now is, um, I'm almost positive, many people never, it doesn't even occur to them that um, Native American people lived in places other than New Mexico, Arizona, Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't occur to people, and I think part of it is just because it's such a it's how we teach about it in our school systems. And it's very problematic to me because we can't just kind of brush this under the rug and forget it ever happened because it still affects these populations today. Yeah. So I'm not very familiar with the agriculture of, you know, New Mexico and, and uh, Arizona and those, the um, like the desert, like arid states. Um, so do they, do these populations grow 
like food on the reservations or you know where are they primarily getting like getting their foods now mm-hmm. is it mainly like commodities or yeah that's a great question um it really varies the regions and the climates within that area are very different just depending on where you are elevation wise sure how close you are to the closer you get to the mexican border the drier it gets mm. um I can provide a pretty good example, though, of how things have changed in the past century or so. In the Tucson area of Arizona, we have a tribe called the Tohono O'odham, and they were historically an agrarian society, so they grew their own food, and that was very much tied to their culture. But in the early 20th century, maybe it was the late 19th century, the white settlers who lived further upriver decided to build a dam, and so they actually took the water resources away from the Tohono O'odham and completely shifted the way, their way of life. So what, instead of, oh, sorry. What was the name of that dam? Oh. Or, or on which, which river? I, the name is escaping me right now. I'm sorry. Okay. Well, we, we, can, we can look it up on the old internet <laughs> later. <laughs> yeah. Um, but essentially, this tribe had been growing corn, beans, squash, the three sisters, as well as a couple of other local um plants because i i don't know if you know this but quinoa is actually native to the southwest it does grow in some of those regions Um, i did not know that yeah so they have all sorts of plants that are indigenous to the area and are part of the landscape but because of the lost waterways they just weren't able to grow these crops anymore at all Hmm. um just to backtrack real quick so i I um, actually met, um, having lived in Arizona for many years and uh, going to Arizona State University uh, and being in Tucson for a little bit, I yeah, met several people from the Tohono O'odham Nation and, um, yeah, so kind of familiar. Well, I'm aware of, of many of the contemporary issues that the people of that nation are having to deal with, uh, such as, like, different border issues right now because their their nation is both in the United States and in Mexico, and I know border issues and immigration are big on the news right now, as they should be. Well, we should mm-hmm. talk about them. I mean, not today, because we're talking about other things, but <laughs> just in general, we need to have yeah. conversations about stuff like that. But, um, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, kind of along those lines, what were kind of the impacts on, like, the daily lives, culture, health? Like, what, what were some of the impacts that you found um, from some of the things you researched or looked into or um, observed when you were there? Yeah, um, so... A lot of these students who are enrolled in the culinary program kept bringing up the issue of colonization and how Mm -hmm. the white man is still colonizing them to this day, which I know a lot of people don't necessarily think about because we're like, oh, colonization, that happened forever ago. Like, we're no longer colonizing. Yeah. But these students still feel the effects. And one example they kept giving was the example of fry bread. Do you guys know what fry bread is? I do not. Okay, so it is essentially a piece of dough that is flat like a tortilla, but then it is fried in oil or fat. Okay. And so... Sounds really good. (laughs) (laughs) So it actually emerged out of these commodity foods that these indigenous people were being force-fed on these trails west. And so it has this super complex symbolism today. On one hand, it's the symbol of the colonization that they had to endure and the changes that they had to deal with, but it's also a symbol of their survival. Mm-hmm. But because of it, it's also super linked to their health problems today because that's what they eat. They eat deep fried pieces of dough 
And mm. I mean, while it's delicious, it's not very nutritious. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Wow, that's really interesting. Unlike quinoa, which is both delicious <laughs> and nutritious, which, you know, until today, I thought quinoa was only found in Whole Foods. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't know you could find it in other places. I love myself some quinoa. It's so good. Yeah. You got to uh, season it right, but. Yeah. I mean, well. Renee doesn't agree with me about that. <laughs> not if you have it with some veggies. Yeah. It itself, yeah. Quinoa is delicious. Yeah, it is. And as we just pointed out, very nutritious. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to leave you guys with that little tidbit, and we're going to take a uh, short music break. So stay tuned. All right. Well, welcome back to Anthro Alert on Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com and on the TuneIn app. Um, we are having a conversation with Jacqueline here. She's a student, PhD student in the department, if you're just joining us. Um, she's telling us a little bit more about her uh, past research. Um, and so I'll let uh, Spencer take it away with the uh, next question for Jacqueline. Sure. Um, so when we, before we went to the break, we were talking about uh, issues of, of colonization and how sort of the culinary students uh, were sort of navigating these types of, of questions and, um, you know, looking at how um, they're still being, their communities are still being colonized today. Um, so can you, can you talk a little bit more about that, about, um, you know, colonization and this link between, between foodways and, you know, how were the students, you know, how was their decision to do culinary school? Did that have any effect on sort of how they were viewing colonization and things? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, not so much for the culinary students, and that's where I had to add a second part to my project. So while the students are very much aware of colonization and the impacts it has in their community, they weren't really sure how to resist the colonization quite yet. So that is when I decided to add that multi-generational approach. Mm. So in order to do that, I ended up reaching out to some professional indigenous chefs. And there are quite a few in the United States. I don't know if you guys have seen any of the recent news articles about them. Uh, there's one chef, Sean Sherman. He is really making waves right now. He's had some posts on NPR and also New York Times. Um, and then there's also Freddie Bitzoe. He just moved to Washington, D.C. to head up the new culinary program at the Museum of the American Indian with the Smithsonian. Great, great. Sorry, great. I had my mic off. Great facility. I was like yelling over here. Great facility. I've been I've been to that. I visited um, recent, like right after it opened. I just happened to be in D.C. and yeah, that that is an amazing, amazing museum. Yeah, yeah. I just finally made it there this past December, so it was just amazing to go there. Um, but for the sake of my research, I spoke to three professional chefs. So I spoke to Claudia Serrato. She is actually in an anthropology PhD program in Washington right now. Um, and then I also spoke to Chef Lois Ellen Frank and Chef Walter Whitewater. Now, Lois Ellen Frank, I don't know if any of our anthropology friends have ever heard of her, but she is a very famous anthropologist in New Mexico. Hmm. So she attended UNM, and she has her PhD in anthropology. UNM happens to be the University of New Mexico. Yes, thank you. Um, and she did her entire project on culinary systems of Native American cuisine. So that was really interesting. 
And Walter Whitewater is not a professionally trained chef, but he and Lois together run a catering company out of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Interesting. How'd you get in contact with all these individuals? Honestly, I just Facebook stalked them. Oh, right on. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that that that's courageous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, there were quite a few people that thought I was crazy when I reached out to them, but for the most part, people were really un- really understanding when I said, "Hey." I'm really working, trying to work on this project on colonization and traditional foodways. So that helped a lot that they thought I knew what I was talking about. I think it, it probably helps that, like, at least some of them were anthropologists, so they kind of understood, like, where you're coming from. <laughs> yes, that did help. They, they were very aware of how difficult it can be to do research with indigenous populations. Yeah, I, I imagine so, especially because, you know, I actually didn't know that they had, like, separate IRBs. Yeah, that was new information. Um, I mean, that's probably a good thing, right? Because they can really, like, monitor what, like, who comes in and out of their communities. But Exactly. And that's uh, actually tied to the past exploitation that has occurred among indigenous populations. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I know we're all really familiar with, like, the, the Tuskegee syphilis study and other atrocities mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Well, the Native Americans have had issues with that in the past, too. I believe it was the Navajo had their stem cells studied. So... Mm. Yeah. It's it's just been a long history of exploitation, and so they're very hesitant of working with researchers. Yeah, I, th- yeah. I wanted, and I don't know for sure, so I might be misspeak. I probably shouldn't even say anything. That, that's probably done, I think, out of one of the one of the universities in Arizona. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it could have been. I mean, there's a lot of. I think probably most universities at least once have maybe had some some questionable things come out of research. But um, you know, coming back to this. Uh, this question of colonization, you know, introducing this mm-hmm. multi-generational aspect of it. You know, what what did you see between the generations of, you know, perceptions of, of colonization and how they, well, I guess one, like how they kind of resisted through foodways or, you know, or even how they perceived traditional foodways between like the generations. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, of course. So one of the biggest things is the culinary students are being taught in the very classical French way. Um, Mm. So, I mean, I don't know if any of you guys have ever watched, like, Julie and Julia or any show that represents any kitchen. What they're all doing is classical French techniques. So you're chopping everything up very finely. You're making sauces, smothering things in sauces, frying foods, whatever. Because My dad's ha- a chef, be- so this sounds yeah. like being at home. Like how else <laughs> How else are you going to make a meat de pois? Of course. <laughs> so true. Um, so the students are kind of learning in this way, and then they're starting to think about how to apply it to their own food ways and their own dishes at home. Whereas the professional chefs have already had time to kind of really master that skill. And so now they're using the recognition that they have as chefs to really raise awareness about these indigenous foodways and also reclaim their foods. Yeah. So um, aside from Facebook stalking, what were some of the methods that you used um, in your project? Ah. <laughs> I wonder if that was like IRB approved. <laughs> IRB approved Facebook stalking. Well, we won't get into how much <laughs> approval I got for Facebook stalking. But um, most of my research was done through interviews. So sitting down with the students, sitting down with the chefs, and just asking them questions and asking them to tell me their story. I always believe that when you work with a population, especially one that has been so exploited in the past and is still marginalized today, it's really important to let their voices be heard and 
I always walk in saying, hey, you know, I'm just a silly white girl. Teach me things. Um, Because I really don't ever want to come across as someone who's pretending to be an expert in their culture. Yeah. So that's a big thing for me. In addition to the interviews, I also did some observations in the kitchen with the culinary students. And I did an exercise where I took some recipes from Lois Allen Frank's cookbook and had the students prepare them. And it was just so interesting because I remember I had one student, he was making a red chili stew. And he was like, yeah, I mean, it's so cool how Lois has it in the recipe, but would it be okay if I make it like my grandmother makes it? And I said, sure, why not? We'll just have a different kind of red chili stew. And then one of the other students was like, oh, well, I'll make it like Lois Allen Frank has it in her cookbook. So we had a chili (laughs) cook-off. Did you get to taste all of them? I did. (laughs) You're like, that's why I research food, so I can just eat it all. (laughs) Exactly. I'll take one for the team. I'll I'll taste everything. You know, that that reminds me of one episode of The Simpsons. Yeah. Which, yeah, this is a while back now. Um, Y'all ever see The Simpsons? I uh, yeah, some no. a little bit, not much. Uh, is you know, it's not so much for the younger folk. Uh, uh, um, a quick so a quick side story to the side story. One time I brought up a Simpsons reference in um, one of the anthropology classes uh, labs that I was teaching. They just looked at me like I had no idea what I was talking about. Oh really? Oh yeah. I mean, no, do, nobody do they even watch. Nobody watches The Simpsons nobody anymore. Watches the, not if it's, it's like the longest running show, and I don't know how. Yeah. I know there's, people there's are like very big fans of it. I'm gonna something. get like hate mail for yeah, saying probably. Simpsons. I mean, <laughs> it's got like a real large following. Oh yeah. <laughs> Oopsies. And uh, so there was one episode where Homer was very concerned about missing the chili cook-off. <laughs> I mean, why would you not be concerned about that? That's true. Chili's. Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, and there's so many good varieties of chili. That's Although, true. should we differentiate for those who don't know? So, there, there's a couple different things that we talk about when we talk about chili. So, there's the actual pepper, which is called a chili, spelled C-H-I-L-E, not to be confused with some other forms of chili. Mm. So, Renee, please feel free to jump in if you ever want to, since you're also from the Southwest. But in New Mexico, at least, there is... There are several varieties of chili, but the main one is the hatch chili. And when it's harvested before it's ripe, it's still green, and it's got a milder flavor to it. And then if it's left out to ripen in the sun all the way, it turns red and has a stronger, spicier flavor sometimes. I'm never quite sure how to quite explain it. You can't really explain it if you haven't tasted it, can you? Hmm. Yeah. Um, but then there's also the stews that can be made out of these chilies, and those are also referred to as chili stew or just chili. But then in the Midwest... Oh, I was going to say, wait. <laughs> yes. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. So then we have chili in the Midwest, which is spelled C-H-I-L-I. And granted, it also occurs in Tex-Mex cuisine. So. Yeah, Tex-Mex, the villain of the culinary world. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there is this huge debate... Should chili have beans or not? I didn't even know that was a debate. Oh, it is. Listen, I feel like the b- debate I'm used to in the, from the Midwest is should chili go on your hot dog or not? Oh, <laughs> that's probably also chili dogs. Dogs. <laughs> that's also dogs. A <laughs> but then it's the same thing. Should the chili that's going on your hot dog have beans or not? Mm. I, I if it's for a hot dog, yes. What else would you put in it? Meat. No, oh, both. What about oh, right what on, about yeah. for meatless friends? Bean only. Bean only. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so for those who love chili that's 
ends with an I. Yeah. It's either in Texas, especially chili should not have beans. Really? Hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. I got to taste more chili. Yeah. No, there's so many good chilies in the world. Um, so, uh, I mean, I mean, there's tons of different uh, species and, and or subspecies and varieties. So, uh, the ones that I think I'm used to or I'm most familiar with, growing up in southern New Mexico, are like the Anaheim and the Ancho. I think those are like the the two main ones. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there's like always like jalapeno in the grocery store, but the Anaheim and the Ancho are like the the two dominant chilies. I think I need to widen my I my know. chili palate. I feel like I'm missing out here. Yeah, <sighs> but I should warn you: if you're not used to spice, start slow. Yeah, I can I can handle spice. Except I don't really like to eat spicy food sometimes because like it makes me sweat while I'm eating, and <laughs> then like then I just feel bad about myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the best. That's the best part. Yeah. So <laughs> like I if, saw like, something it's yesterday. A, it's a that said, like, uh, something on the internet, so this could be unreliable, but that chili makes you live long, or spice makes you live longer, mm. so that's maybe what, that sweating is good. Yeah. Yeah. Just a cleanse. A cl- and, yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, all, all joking aside, if, you know, you're eating a meal and if you don't feel bad for yourself, uh, you're probably eating the wrong food. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. True enough. Um, so, going back to the, to the culinary students here. <laughs> yes. One of our famous sidetracks here on Anthro Alert. Um, that was all with a Simpsons reference, too. Yeah, Sidebar yeah, Nation. Yeah. I mean, we it was in the general area of food, though, right? So we were, we were kind of going parallel to the right track. Um, I'm interested to know, you know, you were talking about how they're being trained in, like, this traditional sort of French culinary style. Um, you know, how did the students feel about that? And, like, you know, because, you know, one one kid's kind of making it more like his grandmother used to make and like you know how how were they blending sort of what they felt was like their indigenous cuisine and like french cuisine you know like how did all that get mixed up yeah so i was fortunate enough i was able to see these students kind of when they first started the program and then right before they were ready to graduate and it was just so interesting. In the beginning, they're really sticking to the recipes that are lined out in their textbook and following it to the French style to a T. But there at the end, they start experimenting more and they say, oh, well, you know, this recipe calls for cornmeal. Would it be okay if we substituted blue cornmeal instead of the standard yellow cornmeal? Um, or other times they play around a little bit more with the spices, adding the chili, trying mm. to make things exciting. Mm-hmm. So... They kind of embraced that French technique and learned how to make it their own so that they could still bring it back to their culture. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's so neat. Huh. Okay. Uh, well, so I guess you, you were doing your research for, what, like three years, right? So this is only like a three-year program then? Um, so my research was more like a year and a half. Oh, okay. Like. Oh, okay. Wow, so it was like a really short culinary program then. Yeah, yeah. They only they're only in the program for about two years. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Actually, one of my roommates from undergrad he grad he just graduated from culinary school like last year, so it was pretty like a short program. Um, so really quickly, we're going to take a break, but can you just kind of can you briefly touch on you know how culture is embodied or like reflected um, by foods that we eat? I know that's like a kind of a tough question, but you get at it a little bit. Oh, it's a great question. I just don't know how quickly I can do that. That's okay. We have time. <laughs> um, 
so how cultures imbibe by the foods that we eat. Yeah. I mean, they say that you are what you eat, right? That's an old proverb. Mm-hmm. And it really is so integral to who we are. I mean, if we think about how Renee and I were just talking about chilies of New Mexico, that is very much part of the New Mexican culture. Um, in the Midwest, there's always that fight about the Coney dogs, right? Versus mm-hmm. Chicago dogs, mm-hmm. Chicago deep dish pizza. Pizza, yep. I mean... Pop or soda. We identify ourselves <laughs> by what we eat. So that becomes part of who we are. And if we can't carry that identity of the foods that we eat with us, it really makes us question who we are as people and who we are as a culture. Well, that's, that's a good answer. Wait, wait, wait. Say that one more time. <laughs> just, just, just like that. You can la- do it. You can do it. Last. <laughs> so... Gosh, now I can't remember exactly what I said. That was so profound. I just need to hear it one more (laughs) time. Like embodies who we are, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if we don't know where we are and what we, or where we come from and what we eat, then we don't know who we are as people or who we are are as a culture. Is that what you meant? Yeah. That's the one. All right. right All right. We're going to take a quick music break and we'll be back. Okay, welcome back. You're listening to Anthro Alert on Bowles Radio, WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com and on the TuneIn app. So we're here talking with PhD student uh, Jacqueline. She's telling us a little bit more about our research, so uh, take it away. So we're in the last few minutes of the show here. So we're going to uh, transition the conversation a little bit. Uh, so our department, you may know if you've listened before, emphasizes applied aspects of anthropology. Uh, and so Jacqueline has actually applied anthropology in other ways as well, working at the Intellectual Property and Technology Transfer Office at New Mexico State, right? Yes, you that is correct. That? Okay, so tell us a little bit about what, what you did there and how you applied your anthropological skills. Oh, man. I always joke that I felt like a fish out of water over there because here I am, the lone anthropologist working with a bunch of engineers and biologists and chemists. Mm. Um, But essentially what I did is I helped assess the technology that faculty members of the university were inventing and decide if it was worth moving forward with the patent process or not. And so how what did you look for when you were evaluating inventions? So... You look for whether it's going to be marketable or not, and also how feasible it is to bring it to market. Mm. So, I mean, it's it's very it's a very time consuming process, right? Um, but we'd always start with we called it a prior art search, kind of see what's out there, if this idea is really new, if it's changing the landscape enough to move forward or not, and then we would try to see. Um, just if it could even make a difference in the market. So how did you use your anthropological skills there? Like what was like the one thing that you're like, okay, like this is how I'm applying what I'm doing. So I was the one who was always saying, okay, I mean, that's great that this is a new invention, but how does it impact humans? Right. Um, So I was always the voice that was like, okay, well, like it's great that we're focusing on the technology of all this, but why... Why aren't we focusing on the customer necessarily? Mm. So you're bringing the the people into the picture essentially. Exactly. Okay. So sometimes they're like technology, and you're like, right. no, humans. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> okay. You gotta meet in the middle somewhere. Yeah. 
Uh, what did you like? What did you learn from your experience working in this sort of setting? Hmm. You know, that's a great question. <laughs> like, did it make you want to work in this type of setting again, or did it just be like, man, I'm I'm out, like not again? I was like out. that PhD sounds pretty nice. <laughs> um, part of the issue for me is because of my experience with food systems. My um, supervisor often put me in charge of the plant patents. So those of you that don't know, you can actually patent plant varieties like yeah, corn or chilies. Stuff, yeah. Exactly. Wait, wait, you said can or cannot? You can. You can. Oh, and therein lies, um, yeah, it's just weird. Monsanto yeah. has gotten yeah. real. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't want to name those villains, but sure. Yeah, I mean, that's I mean, all right. <laughs> just more hate mail. I'm, I'm out. I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> And our show is lost funding. (laughs) I mean, it's not like it's a secret. (laughs) But it does raise the question of who has the right to own these things. Right. Um, Because technically, these companies can take one variety that belong to a population. Let's go with, you know, a corn variety from one of the tribes of the Southwest. And they can tweak one or two genetics. And then they can patent it. And then the people who had previously had access to these crops can no longer grow them. And this is uh, this is what Preston was, uh, Preston Lafarge. So he was a guest that we had um, previously. I don't remember when. Like two uh, or three weeks ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, he was. this is exactly kind of the topic of his research and, and saying, you know, well, who who can claim these as theirs and why is even that even possible? And, right. Uh, a lot of questions. And that was a good conversation. So yeah. look for that on anthroalert.com. Mm-hmm. Except there he was talking about sort of like who has rights to claim certain types of knowledge, right? And so now we can apply those same certain questions to physical objects. Sounds exactly. very Foucauldian. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Well, actually, a lot of, a lot of it. He, <laughs> he, he did throw some, some Foucault in there. Well, Bree, now you know why I always bring it back to Foucault I in know. class. It makes so much sense. Full circle. Here we are. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think he gets overused sometimes in anthropology, but that's just my that's opinion. A, <laughs> Maybe just to clarify on minority on, opinion, on what it is we're talking about. Michel yeah. Foucault. Michel Foucault. He's a philosopher, historian, theorist. Yeah. Big yes. name. Big name in uh, anthropological theory. He came theory. up with a lot of cool ideas that anthropologists are like, man, that's great, and they use them a lot. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> Um, well, that about wraps up all the time that we have uh, this week. So thank you, Jacqueline, for coming on. Um, we appreciate you volunteering your time to to come on here and uh, hear us ramble and rant. And you know, of course, thanks for having me. Yes. So, are there any sort of final? thoughts or summations that you would like our listeners to take away yeah, from or, your conversation this week or Jacqueline what's like the what's the future hold for you oh yeah that too oh man oh that's making me question my entire <laughs> existence no like yeah like what are you looking forward to yeah um as for like what i think one of the key takeaways is for the research i really want people to question who has the right to determine authenticity in cuisine um, just because you see that something, or not even just cuisine, artwork even, or any form of culture, just because you see that it's supposedly American, Indian, Native American, whatever, check to see who's actually reproducing this piece of culture and really question if it's actually authentic and think about who is determining that authenticity. So that's my main takeaway from my research. Um, as for where am I going now, you know, I really 
raised a lot of questions about food sovereignty and who has the right to claim foods as their own. Um, and so I think this ties in really well to the current political landscape, especially when we think about how there have been new proposals to change the food assistance programs here in the United States. And Those have been very recent, too. Yeah. So for those of you that haven't caught up with that quite yet, there's a proposal to provide commodity boxes to those who are on food assistance programs, which basically means that the government is going to decide what people can eat. So for for those uh, for the for the for the people who would take the position that government is too big and shouldn't it should play less of a role in uh, individual people's lives. Um, apparently this does not apply to that. No, apparently not, and I don't quite understand how they can sit on both sides of that. Well, because that's going to bring in a lot of money because those commodities are going to make a lot of money for someone, which is then going to circle around into the politicians that are And it also gets in, <laughs> Yes, and it also gets yeah. into the more complex issues of we don't want those people on food assistance to buy steak and lobster because we know that that's what they're doing. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's just kind of like big food in general, right? And like exactly. all, all the interests that go into that and, you know, from seeds to commodities to, you know, it starts starts at the seed and goes all the way up. But basically, we're seeing a repeat of history, except now instead of colonizing mm-hmm. indigenous people, we're colonizing our own people who are on the fringes of society and impo- in, in impoverished situations. Mm. So. All right. Well, on that note. Oh, you forgot to you forgot to say what's what's in store for you in the future. Oh, what's in store for me in the future? Yeah. I don't know. I'm going to be here for a while, so I guess we'll see. Maybe right. I'll come on again in a little bit. So you've done what one, like one full year of your or this will be your full year, right? Yep, this is my second semester here. Okay. So you have 3 or 4 years left to go in the old PhD? Yeah, hopefully only 3 or 4. Yeah. And then um would you like to be a professor or? Um, no, I would really like to work in applied work. I'm mm, hoping gotcha. to maybe get a job with the government, perhaps the USDA, any position where I can hopefully do research that will influence policy and make changes for the better. Awesome. Well, with that note, we're going to end for this week. Thank you all for listening and um, tune in for our next one hour segment where we'll have another student. All right. Stay tuned. <laughs>